Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing the Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of our respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. On today's episode, we interview Dr. Jack Cochran, the former CEO of the Permanente Federation, who recently published the book Healer, Leader, Partner, Optimizing Physician Leadership to Transform Healthcare. He has a bit of a cold and there were some minor issues with connectivity, so please bear with us. He makes an argument for why physicians, after all of our sacrifices, need to work to right the ship that is the healthcare system. And he gives us some strategies for finding ways to take those leadership positions and how to be effective once we're in them. He talks about finding motivation to lead by reading our med school applications, but after the interview, I brought something up to him, and this is my show, so I'm going to mention it now. One of my favorite books is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, and the theme is to help cope with your grief, stagnation, depression. You find purpose, purpose in that suffering. So I would argue for those suffering from burnout, rather than turning to your idealism, use that to find the cause. This is where you make your stand. This is where you make your fight. And this is where you direct your leadership. He also gives us some recommendations for two small but powerful habits that we can use to help cultivate leadership traits within ourselves. One that fits neatly on a two-by-two and the other that fits neatly in a three-by-five. And at the end, we discuss his views on mentorship. And it reminded me of a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where Calvin says, there's treasure everywhere. You'll see what I mean. Welcome back to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. On today's episode, we have Dr. Jack Cochran. He started out like me as an otolaryngologist and then went on to become a pediatric plastic surgeon. Uh, And eventually, his career led him to become the executive director of the Permanente Federation. Now, Dr. Cochran wrote a book called The Doctor Crisis, How Physicians Can and Must Lead the Way to Better Healthcare, and recently published his second book, Healer, Leader, Partner, Optimizing Physician Leadership to Transform Healthcare. So, Dr. Cochran, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Brad. It's great to be here. So first, can you tell us how you went from plastic surgeon, pediatric plastic surgeon, to the executive director of the Permanente Federation? Right. I I can only tell you that because I experienced it, but it was not a, a thoughtful, proactive, intentional life plan. It was more a series of um, learning, reaction, um, acknowledge what I was seeing, and then changing. So I started off because <coughs> somewhere in medical school, I did not come from a family of doctors. I'm, a, I'm a, not a physician uh, family. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought probably general family practice or something. But I really realized I had a great interest in surgery, and I, I uh, really loved doing the reconstructive plastic surgery that I saw in med school, because it seemed to make such a difference to kids with facial deformities and burns, et cetera. So it seemed very, very impactful. So I did that, practiced it, went into private practice in Denver, Colorado. And while I was there, um, was sort of encouraged or tapped by some of the hospital leadership along the way to, oh, why don't you become chairman of the surgery department? I did that for a few years and then president of the medical staff. So I, I was sort of being encouraged by my colleagues to do some leadership. I then switched my uh, practice base from a private practice to Kaiser Permanente because another uh, acknowledgement of the changes in healthcare, I thought, 
I think the future is going to belong to systems of care and, and not just isolated practices. And so it might be useful to be part of a system of care. And I practiced alongside Kaiser in Denver, and it was a high-quality group. And I thought, well, this this could be the, the good match for me. And then I practiced there for several years, again, just a, a full-time surgeon. And change happened. The managed care era came and, and lit up the uh, the skyline with all kinds of concern and angst. And <clears throat> I uh, became involved in the medical group for Kaiser as a board member. And shortly thereafter, um, was recruited and selected to be the president of the regional medical group. So a series of things that were not were not well necessarily planned, but happened. And I realized I had some sense that leadership was uh, at least a capability of mine, although I had to spend an awful lot of time developing it. And then the Colorado region, which I led for seven years or for nine years from 09 to uh, uh, 99 to 07, was um, did very well. And then I was recruited to be the national leader for the Permanente Federation, which is the national organization providing support for all eight Permanente medical groups. So that was the journey. It was a bit of a take advantage of situations, learn, do what what I could, try to make improvements, and then, you know, getting some recognition that maybe what I was doing was was working and helping. And so I got asked to do some some more things. And frankly, I, I learned on the job as as I've often said. The reason I think physician leadership is so important is that it's just not a part of any of our intrinsic training, and so. To be a, a plastic surgeon, I had four years of medical school, six years of residency, extensive certification and examination and, and monitoring and proctoring to, to ensure that I was competent. On the other hand, when I went into the leadership of the business of medicine as the president of a regional group, my training was just in time, on the job, trial and error. And that is a, could not be a more stark contrast between the two career paths. So lots of self-learning, lots of uh, learning on the job. And I thought maybe what I learned um, should be distilled down into something that could be useful for aspiring and established doctors to make them more competent and more confident because we don't get trained in the skills of the human condition of leadership in our basic training. And in your book, it's not just, it's not a how I did it, right? It's a compilation of evidence-based information that can help us to become better leaders. And that's that's one aspect of it that I really appreciated. Not just, I was a leader, this is how I did it, and this is why I was successful, but rather, these are the lessons that I learned, and these are the studies and psychologists and other leaders that uh, I'm referencing to show you that it wasn't just how I did it, but how others are doing it as well. Right. Well, you're very discerning. Uh, the, 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 that book prototype that you uh, mentioned, which is, look at me, this is what I've done, and this is how I did it. There's no shortage of those. And uh, I have read a number of them, but not finished all of them. And I think it's because you realize after you're into it a while, it's like, you know, it's it's my own personal saga, and while it doesn't have to be uh, bragging and all that, it, it it really is more about a a biography. And I think that this 
this world of leadership is a very personal journey. And I was, I really thought it was fun what I learned <laughs> because the, the, the model for, for medical education and for most, frankly, most professions, engineering, nurses, is high levels of academic achievement and academic prowess. You know, the uh, A's in chemistry will inherit the earth. <coughs> Excuse me. And while that's not unimportant, it does not necessarily make it uh, make you capable or make it easy to relate to and deal with vulnerable, independent, fiercely capable human beings. And and because leadership is not about leading the status quo for the next several decades, leadership is all about leading change. You really better have some understanding of what makes your fellow man tick and how uh, we can either be uh, engaged and enthused and, and committed or, or not. And I would say the difference between commitment and compliance and both can make people change. But commitment is you actually share enough context and capability with people that they, that they see a future that works for them. Ideally, it's the same one or similar to what you see. And therefore, they will take their focus, their discretionary energy, and their enthusiasm and work toward that. And that's commitment. Compliance says, if we don't do this by the end of this year, we're all screwed. That also works. But it is not the same as creating a long-term culture of uh, creativity and innovation and, and enthusiastic career satisfaction. So I just learned an awful lot. I probably read 60 or 70 books and thousands of articles, listened to everybody's lecture I could. And I found that there were themes and that there were things that I agreed with, things I didn't agree with. I mean, <coughs> people who believe in highly forceful, dogmatic leadership would find my, my book not something that they could relate to. But on the other hand, um, it works. And it works for a variety of people. And I, I can only tell you the some of my greatest joys are people who originally heard me talk about one of the most important initial steps in leadership is listening. And, and you know, and I'm a surgeon, remember, and they would roll their eyes and go, oh, my God, what, what's this going to be about? The most important starting point is listening. And they have learned with me and from me and watched me and watched the results. And they've come back to me months, two years later and go. Jack, I got to tell you, my eyes were rolling out of my head when I used to hear what you some of the things you said and wrote about leadership. I thought, this guy's got his head in the clouds. This is this is it's about getting the right decisions, giving them to people, and making them do it. I said, well, th th there is a place for that. But I said, long term, you end up with somebody who's 80% committed, and you, and you get a pretty good result versus versus a group of people that go, this is exactly what I care about. This is exactly what I do want to do. And thank you for asking my opinion and for listening to me. <laughs> I have this little saying in the, I'm sorry, I'm getting over a cold, so I'm very obnoxious, but I'm sorry. Drinking lots of water and doing all the good doctor things. But I, I have a thing in my book that said something to the effect of um, leadership is a continuous iterative process of sharing context with trusted friends and individuals, hearing their response, listening to what they say, acknowledging it, 
challenging it in other ways. So you continue to co-create solutions, co-create ideas, and co-create methodologies for going forward. And as you do that, you develop, um, talk about the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You actually now are building context that you both agree on because you come to think, you come to ideas with one point of view versus another point of view. And if you spend all your time trying to argue your point of view, you really miss the opportunity to listen. And one of the things I, I tell people about credibility, which again, some of my more dogmatic leaders don't like, is credibility is based on two things. One is your ability to influence. Can you convince me? Can you teach me? Can you show me a way that uh, I believe in or care about the ability to influence? Ah, but that's not full credibility. Full credibility also requires that you demonstrate a willingness to be influenced. And and the, the nuance there is, if if all you have is your ability to influence, then then your your whole card or your, your ace in the hole is omniscience, right? Because nobody's ever given you feedback and course corrections and, and nuanced uh, uh, corrections of what you're saying. And so that's why I think it's very important that people understand the power of listening. And uh, it never goes out of my teaching. It never goes out of my writing. And and after people have experienced it and learned it, they say, boy, that was so powerful. And I just, when I first heard it, I thought, come on, let's get to the meat of this, Jack. Let's get to the really hard stuff. I said, the hard stuff is building a coalition of people who want to go the same direction. That's the hard stuff. You do not do that by coercion. You can. They'll march a long ways. You'll never build a culture that's going to continue to turn out great innovation and, and high discretionary effort people. Let's take a step back um, because a lot of the discussion among physicians now is about burnout, right? That's a big concern among physicians. And what you're proposing is, is a pretty big ask, right? And I'm going to take a quote directly from your book. It says, I'm a good doctor. I signed up to work hard in pre-med, get into a good medical school, make good grades, and get into a residency so I could work 100 hours a week, then pass my boards, go into a practice where I take calls often in the middle of the night, and deliver great care to my patients. That's what I signed up for, so please don't talk to me about leadership. And so, what we're, from my perspective, I've devoted my life to my training, and I still work really hard to take good care of my patients, to keep up with my education, and to try and better myself. But I'd also like to spend time with my family. So what I need you to do is tell me what I, why I should take time either away from my family or my practice or my own self-care to devote myself to leadership. Outstanding, outstanding question. And this is where the two books link. Um, the Doctor Crisis was an attempt to assemble a clear view of reality and clarify and personalize <laughs> patients and caregivers uh, the, the real realities of certain contrasts. And the contrasts that are along that career you just described, healthcare got a lot better. We had great advances, miracles, cures all of which were good for patients, all of which were good for doctors. But unfortunately, some other things happened. The, the care was also uneven. We found out that medical error was an issue. We found out that patients' families were having 
bankruptcies from medical bills, and we found out the doctors were burning out and all around us. And what happened was there was nothing wrong with the covenant that we believed in and that we believed was guaranteed. The, the, the flaw was it wasn't guaranteed forever based on you know, us just doing our work and letting the whole other, other ship go its own way. Dr. Burnout it was something I brought up in 1998 when I became president of the group. My number one constant focus for a turnaround was preservation and enhancement of career. I would say that the enthusiasm for that was very, very limited. Most people related to it. A lot of people said, come on, they're a bunch of well-paid, spoiled guys. Come on, get, get, them, get them working. Or the, the other extreme, which was equally worthless, oh, the poor things, it's just awful being a doctor. And so the reason I bring that up is I started talking about this 20 years ago. And nobody was, was talking about it. Today, thank goodness, it's very pervasive. And, and what we have to do is to own it like we own any other scientific challenge. What is the problem? Define the problem. Well, it's the computer. Well, it's the insurance companies. Well, it's the lawyers. Well, it's the, okay, it's okay. Let's define the problem. Let's then take our best thinkers and say, how do we parse this out to create some, some potential solutions that we can test, we can measure, and then we can improve? This is not, physician burnout is not more complex than cancer. We just haven't focused our science, our energy, and, and our intellect to it. So we were, we were a little, um, we were a little focused on our careers, which was good, but things happened around us, things happened to us, and many of us were too passive, and we, we were victims. Was that wrong? No. It, it was. You're right. The rules changed, and some of us saw it, and some of us didn't. Now, it's not 100% burnout, interestingly. It's somewhere in the 50, 60, 70%. What are the happy ones thinking? Well, many of them have gotten into organized systems of care or other careers, they've done a lot of things. But, but basically, the, um, the, the issue that we're talking about is when we were young and we had to, the dream of being doctors, we knew we had to work our butts off. So we took hard classes and we made good grades. And then when we came to the medical school application process, we had to fill out an application, including write a couple of paragraphs about why did we want to be doctors. Well, guess what? Find that application and read those two paragraphs. They are, they'll bring tears to your eyes. They are teeming with idealism. They are full of hope. They are overridden with humanity and compassion. And that's exactly where it should be today. So let's not give up. And, and, and so, so doctors are retiring early and quitting and all that. I, I, can't, I can't go into full retirement and say I'm gonna work on my fly fishing. The, there is a covenant that I have with patients, even though I'm not operating, and there is a covenant I have with my profession, which I cannot just turn my back on and say, it sucks. That that kind of victimization says, patients, you're on your own. You are on your own. And so <laughs> things got more complex. Knowledge exploded. Technology exploded. Everything got more complex. And um, the old model of the doctor-patient visit as the, as the location, the paper chart as the record, and the physician brain as the source of 
was simply inadequate in the complexity of the world of exploding knowledge and technology. And so we um, can't just sit in our small practices and ponder that and make a change. We have to get into some organizational changes and, and some changes that I talk about in great detail in the book. But where we are doing that, we're starting to see some very encouraging things happen. And that's the notion of disproportionate impact. Physicians still have, they, they, we are the most highly respected profession for medical information. We are not the most highly respected clinical profession. That is nursing. But we are the most highly respected for clinical information. And so that's, that's an honorable place. And by the way, as I said before, we may have a hard day. We may be having a hard time. But the role of patient, no matter how tough our day is, the role of patient is involuntary and instantaneous. And they need us to retain our covenant to, to the issues that are facing them in healthcare. Because they don't want uh, Watson or some AI system to come in and take care of everything. <laughs> On the other hand, let me give you a little example. This happened to me in, in two years on two continents. And it was like, Jack, I think he's been slapped. I was at an app development conference in about 2012 at Stanford Business School. Not Stanford Medical School, Stanford Business School. A bunch of medical app developers. And I was probably the only guy in the room with a tie. And I, was, I gave a talk on position leadership. And then I was on a panel. And the panel was three medical app developers in their 20s and 30s and me. And the guy who ran the panel, he said, okay, the three of you, you guys are developing apps. You're trying to get uh, healthcare fixed from a different point of view than doctors. Turn to Dr. Cochran and tell him how you view doctors in your business development. And I thought, what a setup. So the first one says, uh, we're still trying to figure out. We can't get doctors interested in what we're doing. You know, every once in a while, some will say, that's interesting, but I'm busy. I've got to see 40 people a day. Sorry. And so we can't even get them interested. The second one says, um, we gave up. We tried. They wouldn't listen. They were only going to do things their own way. They weren't going to try anything new. So we gave up. So you can tell that the temperature in the room is growing, right? The third one said, screw them. They had their chance. They decided not to embrace the modern world of information and technology. We completely ignore them. All we care about is patients and insurance companies. And you talk about a knife through the heart of a doctor, a, a person who's trying to develop cures for problems through the tech world saying, we care about insurance. The next year I was in Brussels and I was on a panel with a guy who was the president of the European medical student. And I said to this medical student, I said, how do you deal with the complexity? We used to carry the Washington manual or the Harry Lane handbook or something with us all the time in our little white pocket, white coat pocket. He says, well, uh, we still have some of those, but um, our professors uh, suggest that we use Wikipedia and Google. And, and I thought I was going to fall off my chair. I thought, what, what, is, what is going on right this minute in the ivy-covered, brick, tenured walls of organized medical schools? <laughs> Do they know this kid just said this? That they talk about Wikipedia and Google? And I, I was shocked. But what he was saying was, he, he wants to carry around 
to three journals and four books and all that. And it just framed for me that all of my assumptions were just that. They were my assumptions. And these guys were dealing with a new world, trying to adapt to it, trying to create different solutions. And so now, instead of the doctor brain and the one-on-one visit, very much like the old go to the bank to cash a check, and then there was ATM machines and now there's cash in your in your cell phone. Now, we have got to do the same thing with medicine, which is to move it much more uh, electronically and personally to the patient. So I think... I think yeah. What you're saying, so the argument to put forth to the reluctant physician who's saying, I barely have time for myself. How how am I going to have time to devote to to leadership? The answer is, well, you have to, because if you don't, someone else will. And if if you're not the one steering the ship, then someone else without your best interest in mind will be doing it. So you have to find the time somewhere. Let me tell you what it's not. Because I think you have probably experienced that, and this is very common in community hospitals. I'll tell you what it's not. It's not, hey, Brad, be a good guy, volunteer, be chief of surgery. You're going to have to go to a dinner two Thursday nights a month. One is the quality committee, and after you've operated all day and made rounds and uh, you know barely gotten through the day, we're going to sit down and give you a chicken dinner and go through quality reports. And then the other... Thursday night a month, we're going to have the executive committee, another chicken dinner and another evening out of your life. And by the way, I hope you're good at it because we're going to give you some people who understand quality are going to help you. That is the model that uh, created no traction around physician leadership because we weren't prepared. We weren't trained. We weren't supported and we were not given time. And so what, what we have to do, and that's why in, in my in the final chapter when I talk about becoming, you know, or, or practicing healer, leader, partner, talk about you have to first of all start in an organizational construct where there is a sense of where you're going. What is the direction or the mission? That sounds like old school thinking, but you better know what you're signing up for. And they better know what you're signing up for. So that's important. And then the second one I call it structure for efficacy and efficiency. And that's the ACOs come along. By structuring, you start to say, I'm going to have business structure, a systematic approach to care that's going to include actually spending money for doctors to not deliver care, to be on finance committees, to be on IT committees, and not to do it at 10 o'clock at night after the end of their day. We're going to invest time, money, and training to give physicians the opportunity to have this as part of their life. Most physicians actually don't mind a little break from clinical times, <clears throat> but not if it's on the, the backs of their life, their budgets, their family, et cetera. So organize for efficacy and efficiency, and then create a system that says, yeah, we're not going to just say all the doctors are volunteers and all the finance people are well-paid. We're going to have a system that says, and, and the physician should not be physician as victim, which I've talked about, they should also not be positioned as tyrant, which says, okay, you you business people, I'm, I'm done. That, that is also a, that's really a, a slap in the face to the profession. So yes, you have a place where you can uh, become part of the solution. Sometimes it means moving or changing or changing bosses. 
those things are all possible. But if you say right now I'm unhappy and I've got another 15 years and I'm going to spend those 15 years treading water, I'm going to have a miserable life, a miserable life. And my family deserves better and I deserve better. So the systems that, that tend to have less unhappy doctors tend to be systems, group practices, organized systems, <coughs> sometimes faculties. But then they have to have leadership that has, you know, the, the compassion of understanding the profession. But this is where the book is so good because it just it, it is so approachable and so easy. I, I say that the subtitle of the, of the book ought to be simple, not easy. I don't I don't throw anything in there that's so esoteric that it's just impossible. But you got to have the capability and the confidence. And uh, what I love is when, when I've got a, a, a guy who's a resident at Duke who read it, and he said he says I've on call every other night. And he says I read this book twice in one week. He said it is just just perfectly timed for me. He said we all of our residents need to read this. <laughs> and to just say this is not some esoteric problem, and it's give up and turn all the finances over to the CFOs and all the IT over to the CIOs. No, we need to be on those teams. We don't, we do not need to be domineering and rude and all that, but we need to be on those teams. So it's, um, in the book, you, you talk about traits. So let's say we, we find ourselves in that position, right? The, the board or the executive committee of the hospital asks you to serve in a leadership position you accept it with the caveat that it is instead of summing up your clinical hours, not in addition to them. Um, you have you outlined in the book a couple of traits uh, for leaders and how to cultivate them. So one thing that I like for this podcast to be is instructional. What's a simple high return on investment habit that you can have to help cultivate your leadership traits? So first, what are you know you outline those traits in the book? So what are they, and what what's a simple thing that we can do? I'm, the first one you mentioned is respected clinician. So I don't think there's really anything that you can do other than you know work hard and know your stuff and and treat your patients well to become a, a respected clinician. But but maybe with the others, unless unless you do have something specific for that, you know some some specific high return on investment habit that we can do. I do have something specific. And the reason I put it in there is is exactly this. You will find a physician who's burned out being a doctor, doesn't like it, and by the way, isn't all that committed or all that good at it. And so they decide they're going to become an administrator. And it's not impossible. It's happened before. That's why that's they give us the bad name because now they're going to be administrators and they're going to turn over their shoulders where we used to be their friends and go, okay, you guys, you got to do this, 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 and this. So respected for your clinical craft is more than your skill as a surgeon. It's what, where, where is he at three in the morning when I need him to call him or how is he toward the nurses or uh, is he a dignified soul? It, it's, it's really important. Respected for your craft. And it's, it's number 1A or something with integrity. And integrity is just that I, I'm a little, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not romantic, but I'm, I'm pretty, pretty convinced that this profession is a real high calling. And I, I think it's an honorable thing for us to take really good care of. And so integrity 
It's that unassailable trust. You know who the person is. You know where they're going to be. That's number one. Respected clinician is number two. Uh, things like EQ, humility, uh, more enterprise-wide views, those are also important. But th those first two are, are just the most important. Where I'd like to, and, and we can stay there, but there's something else that I have put in the book and it's not quite as clear. It's sort of the, I call it the essentials of leadership. So it's neither traits nor is it expectations, which are the behaviors of the, of the, of the corporation. <laughs> and they all turned out to be C's. So I, I just want to mention them because the first one nobody talks about. It's, it's one that I said, I, I learned this for some reason so early, and it was confirmed about every year in my career. So the five C's are clarity, consistency, collaboration, compassion, and courage. And why is clarity number one? And, and again, consistency is one A. Clarity is number one because we have to make hard decisions and we have to make complex solutions out of really very complex data and information sets. And so when we do that, the, the, the situation isn't always real clear, but your team, your group, your organization deserves to know how you think and how you feel. And why is that? Because, for example, you say, I think we should stop doing robotic surgery for prostate. I think we should stop doing it. Well, that's a pretty bold statement, but it's clear. And the beauty of the clarity is that then your colleagues say, okay, I don't have to guess. Here's why you are exactly wrong. I'm going to give you data. I'm going to bring you this. I'm going to prove to you you are wrong. Or I'm glad you said that because the literature now suggests you're right. So clarity is so hard because it sort of brands you with the opinion. And people go, well, I think we should uh, build a new hospital in the south part of the city. But on the other hand, you know, the other guys are building down there. Maybe we should look at the west side. And you know, pretty soon your team's going, okay, is there something to call the question? So clarity, you watch it. Watch it when you go to meetings, Brad, because you'll see people who waffle and perseverate. And, and it's not about being more bold, more self-assured, or more right. It's about being clear. Because clarity gives people the gift of saying, I disagree, and this is why, or I agree fully, and this is why. Clarity is one of the things that I see people really bungle when they get stressed. They just don't want to take a stand. And that's because taking a stand implies that you're going to be wrong sometimes. And that's why the number two C is consistency. They want to know who's going to show up. Oh, oh my God, what's Cochran tonight? Who is he? What's going on? <laughs> Does that make sense? Um, I've, seen, I've seen leaders who couldn't articulate a clear point of view make people crazy. And you know, all they were trying to do was avoid a really tough dilemma because they just didn't have the solution. And by the way, one, one solution is, I've thought about it, I have no bias. You guys are going to help me. And that's why I, I, I go back to talk about listening. L listening is, um, it, it's more important than people ever understand because don't forget, you are a gifted otolaryngologist. You are trained deeply in a field with multiple years of residency and training and research and all kinds of things. 
You're not deeply trained in leadership. And so listening says, I'm going to be a leader. I'm not omniscient. I'm going to have to take the time to understand what my, my friends and colleagues' points of view are. Well, I think that gets also back to humility, right? Because if you're if you're clear about what you want, but in the setting of humility, if it turns out that you're very clear and very wrong, you still have to have the humility be able to be able to accept that. And I'll just give you a, a lesson that I provided for a guy one day, and he said he thought I was kind of full of it, and then he said he said within three months it was so valuable to him, <laughs> and that is the the consequences of clarity are it's your decision, your name's on it, you made it, and so there's no question when the outcome occurs that you had your fingerprints fall over it. But I said, here's what's important, is that when you are wrong, and if you are not wrong enough, you are not making very large decisions. You're making 60% decisions. Sometimes you've got to make 100% decisions. And if you're not wrong with the law, you're not taking enough stretch and not taking enough risk. But here's the situation. If you go through a process, you come up with a solution, and you declare it, and it it gets executed and it's wrong. It is a pivotal point for you in your personal development and your personal well-being. And it's this. If you're wrong, how you go from there is one of the most telling realities of yourself and of your leadership. If you say, if you uh, deflect blame, if you externalize blame, if you minimize results, if you deny the results, if you do all those things, then you've really created a, a lose out, out of a potential neutral win. Because now you're spending all your time backtracking and there is never no learning going on. On the other hand, if you say, well, this was my hypothesis, this was our idea, it did not work. Starting point is it did not work. Where do we go from here? Well, we better examine our assumptions. We better examine our data. We better examine our thought process around the strategy. We better examine our structure around execution, and we better examine the execution. <laughs> now, if you commit to do that and you're dead wrong, then you deserve the final, the, the final piece of the learning curve, which is personal forgiveness. Personal forgiveness is what you deserve when you make bold decisions, when you're clear about it, when you go out to people and you say, we're going to have to do this. I'm, I'm not a thousand percent sure, but this is where we're going. And then you're wrong. In order for you to ever do that again and not next time take a 50% less risk, you got to learn to forgive yourself. And it's, this is not the groveling, fall down, I'm not worthy forgiveness. This is, wow, I really, I really learned from that. I was wrong. Kind of forgiveness. And I think I've heard that referred to is talking to yourself as if you were one of your friends, right? If your friend was in that situation where they made a mistake and the outcome wasn't wasn't what they wanted, right? What would you tell your friend? Well, what we tell ourselves is frequently not the same voice that we would use to tell our friends and we're much harsher. And if uh, I think I've heard if you sp if we speak to ourselves, if we speak to our friends the way we speak to ourselves, we wouldn't have any friends. So I think that is that is that correct? 
Yeah, that's a good. I haven't heard that that way, but that's great. <laughs> and it's true. It's just, um, you know, the, the, the concept of personal forgiveness is not weakness. It's, it's a matter of of recharging yourself from a position of great vulnerability. And and we need to make hard decisions. So what about habits? So I'm I'm also a big fan of of small habits small effective habits win the day. So if if our listeners were to put a sticky note on the bathroom mirror and one on the fridge and one on their computer at work to just remind them of something simple that they should be doing each day to cultivate either a leadership mindset or one of your uh one of the leadership traits, integrity, humility, EQ, passion, what's a small thing that we should be doing each day in order to cultivate that uh, leadership. Yes, I, that's a, that is. I love that question. Um, I don't think I've been asked it exactly like that, so I'm going to babble here for a second while I think about it. Um, well, first of all, let, let me just do a, a tiny, tiny digression. I think we have time. It's going to take about a minute. I have a <clears throat> chapter of the book called "The Crux," and the crux is basically understanding yourself, because if you don't understand yourself, then you are uh, you're very vulnerable to l- living a very mythological existence of how things happen. And by that, I mean this: Do you fundamentally believe that your fellow man, your fellow colleagues, your doctors, your nurses, whatever, given the options, the information, etc., are most likely to try to do the right thing, want to do the right thing? And, and, carry, and carry good values with them? Or do you fundamentally believe that your fellow man are out for themselves? They're going to do what they need to do to get their things done and get them done, and that um, they are very self-centered. Now, as you know, from the dichotomous nature of that question, there are people on both sides. We, we have both types of people. <laughs> but the, the issue about the crux is understand your own bias your own bias because it's going to color how you respond to people and you're going to be fooled sometimes if you're the trusting one and that's okay as long as you you learn from it but so the trusting one says um i believe in you i'm going to share information i'm going to you know carry along with this conversation etc etc and i'm going to believe in you sarah (laughs) it starts with listening and then acknowledging their points of view and then challenging the, the greater context as you build it. And it's a, it's a slower, iterative process that involves a lot of listening. Very slow at the beginning, but it builds tremendous momentum between you and your colleagues, whomever they are in this process. The other side of that, which is uh, if you don't believe in people, then what do you do? You fool them, you incent them, you coerce them, you, you, you try to either force them or fool them. And lots of leaders do that. That's that's their thing. They they try to coerce or force or fool people. By the way, both techniques can get you a result. But again, one creates a culture of you know compliance. Okay, I'll, I'll be a good soul. I'll go along. And the other creates a, a culture of, of possibility. So I say that because one three by one fifty I might put would say manage yourself. But it could also be part of a instead of a two-by-two sticky, a three-by-five sticky, which is my leadership on a three-by-five card. And that is manage yourself, develop great leaders and teams, 
and learn continuously. And that's, to me, the daily mantra of leadership. Manage yourself, develop great leaders and teams, and learn continuously. And manage yourself is number one because you watch people, the voltage drops because they get, they get hooked and they get angry or they get rude or they get something because they're not managing themselves. That's, that's the EQ. But then the one other one, the other sticky, and this is a two-by-two, two, I would put, listen, listen, because you've already heard what you have to say. <laughs> you don't need to hear yourself more. You've heard, you know what you've had to say. Listen, it's so powerful. I, I said that one of the great, great opportunities for me, one of the reasons I was, <coughs> you know, by some standards, successful early, was I was so inexperienced, you know, on the job, just in time, trial and error. I was so inexperienced that I had to go out and sit down with primary care docs and just listen to them. And I go, geez, really? Yeah, that's what that computer does to our daily practice. I said, well, it's, it's not that hard in surgery. So listening is, is uh, so important. And I, I would add as a, as a caveat to, to listen, that when you're listening, you really need to be fully present because we always have that running monologue in our own heads that frequently responds to people as they're speaking and you need to find a way to shut that off and when you're really present you're you're shutting that off so that you really are listening because it's i think it's it's easy to kind of nod and 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 kind of acknowledge what they're saying but you you also have to find a way to shut off your own inner monologue while you're doing that so you can really Really be present and really that's an effective tool for listening and that's that's the listening that um says i'm just going to listen long enough so you give me an opening to make my point right that's that, that's the listening you're talking about which, we, which it sounds like what uh, i just did to you so i i guess i apologize for that no 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 no, 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 no not at all not at all you give a very good example very good example <laughs> but that's the uh, so the true listening is uh, it's it's a practice craft. You know, it's it's really something you have to because we're all in a hurry. We've all got to get things going. But the act of listening creates a little space in the room where people who are because otherwise, you know, you go in there and you blow people away with your your rank, your serial number, your title, and your charisma and all that, and pretty soon they just say. Okay, forget it. I, I just there's nothing I can add to this. This guy's just gonna go all night. But I, I think, but that's that's the listening for, and you see that it's just it's, it's almost funny because it disrupts the meeting. But somebody's just sitting there listening, and they and as soon as somebody says something where they can get their two cents in, they jab it in there. As as opposed to sometimes the best example of of good listening is when somebody's done, you go, wow, I I had never thought of that. I, I I got to tell you, that one uh, I, never crossed my mind. Can we spend a minute on that? Very powerful. Very I think powerful. Very plenty, honoring. We have plenty of opportunities to practice it because we see patients every day where we listen and need to be present and need to shut off that inner monologue and actually hear hear their story and, and hear what they're saying. So that that's the two by two right there. Listen. There, there's one more thing that you, you spoke about in the book that if, if you have time, I'd like to go into a little more detail before we wrap this up. And that's mentorship. 
Mm-hmm. So how do we find mentors? How do we keep them? How do we effectively learn from them? I, I wrote a whole chapter on it. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, is, it is not a static discipline or field in my view. Um, and that's why I wrote the one piece called Mentors Everywhere. <laughs> I tell this to my son or my grandson, I said, you know, sometimes you learn from people just by being present, watching them, and then in your in your private mind saying, oh my gosh, I never want to act like that. Oh my gosh, I don't like what that's looking like. <laughs> so <clears throat> there's mentors everywhere. And one of my favorite stories was a we had this. I was doing a surgical trip in the Philippines, and we had this uh, young Filipino general surgeon. I was one of three plastic surgeons in the U.S. And we were working in Manila, and this kid was so gifted. He was he was just shocking. He was a second year surgery resident, and we were doing cleft lips. And usually those guys, you know, they cut knots. They cut the knots when you tie the thing, and after one day, this this uh, we were having dinner. This one guy said, "I worked with this guy Victor today, and he he's amazing." He said, "You know, you'd think he was a third year plastic surgery and he's so good." And then somebody else worked with him, and then I worked with him. So after three nights, we we're going, well, "What's with this kid?" So the next day, you go and you say, "Okay, Victor, we're not going to let you do the surgery, but how would you design and draw this?" He says, "Well, Doctor Congren, as I recall, Doctor Hag said that we saw this angle and this, and all of a sudden." He's pointing to things and showing me things. And I'm going, this is just humiliating. <laughs> he he has such a hand-eye gift. But we finally sat down and we said, we, gotta, we have to learn more from this kid than, than we could ever teach him. And what it was was he had a serenity and a reverence about him that permeated the operating room. <clears throat> Arguably the most junior guy in the operating room. His, his sort of reverence and his mindfulness, it was just amazing. We, we were just shaking our heads. And, and, and he would laugh because he didn't get it. He didn't see it. And uh, we said, Victor, you know, just, just never, ever stop being Victor and do as much teaching as you can and as much mentoring as you can. So that's what I mean by mentors everywhere. Did I go in there for a, a teaching relationship? And it's, no, mentor, mentors everywhere is say mindfulness. Who can I learn from today? And sometimes it's really positive and sometimes it's really negative. Now, the classic mentoring is sort of structured. You have a two people or, or that sort of thing, and you, you get a topic and you create a, <coughs> a paradigm and some expectations and some ways you're going to measure it. Uh, I would say this, don't let it go forever. And don't continue to think that the gradient goes one way, especially today when those of us Older physicians really need to learn a lot more from the millennials than they need to learn from us at times. So I think that, that this should be very fluid. And then we have the, another model called co-mentoring. And the co-mentoring model was we would ha- take uh, two senior leaders, a VP and a, or two VPs, and we would uh, match them with a couple of junior uh, leaders. And we would pick a topic and we would meet. And uh, it was good because it, it one senior leader could be leading and talking and the other could be watching and learning and it just sort of mixed things up and then after six months we would change groups and then we would just then we would get together and have an evening dinner and talk about it. so i think 
keeping it fresh, keeping it dynamic, and that sort of thing is important. But the standard mentoring is, you know, person with a higher gradient of knowledge or information, a person with a lower gradient, and how do you transmit that and, and, and learn that? That's important, no question. But I think that the whole learning philosophy is a lot deeper than that. So where uh, where can people find you online? Um, www.jackcochranmd.com. Fantastic. And then um, the books, the first book, Dr. Crisis, How Physicians Can and Must Lead the Way to Better Healthcare, and the one that just came out, Healer, Leader, Partner, Optimizing Physician Leadership to Transform Healthcare. Two fantastic books. And, uh, you know, if, if, we don't, if we don't take the reins and lead, then someone else will. So I, it's, I, you make some excellent points, have some excellent instruction for, for us physicians on how to do it. And I really appreciate your time to talk, taking the time to talk to me and the listeners on the podcast about it. But you, my friend, who I don't know well, but hope to know better, uh, are already charting your own pathway. And you're finding a new and different way to, to, to deliver on the healthcare equation besides just clinical. And we must all do that. Be creative, be committed, and uh, continuously learn. And, and broaden this network. You know, it's the, network, the Coalition of Courageous Colleagues. We have a lot going for us. We have the high ground of the, the morality of the profession. We have the needs of society. We have the uh, the American dream. You know, I, I say one of the problems we have today is that because of the cost issues in healthcare, the average family is rationing healthcare at the kitchen table. They're taking these high deductibilities and they're sitting down at the kitchen table and saying, "I got to get a new clutch to the truck. We're not going to be able to do the tonsillectomy this month," or "I've got to get a new uh, refrigerator. We're not going to be able to do the MRI this month." And that is just rationing healthcare at the kitchen table. It's a tra- it's a tragedy, and uh, and we have the 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 le- in our profession we have the leverage and the ability to to do something about it, and we need to. And, and by the way, we have the credibility. Deeply, people still lo- love and believe in us. And people who say I'm going to quit, I, I say, don't find another way to do it because a profession needs honoring, not you know, not abandoning. Well, thank you very much for your time and for your leadership. What what fun. So great to talk to you. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. We can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. Our show is produced by Guilfrey Studios in New York City. You can find them at guilfreystudios.com. Our theme music was written by our show's producer, voice actor, Karin Guilfrey.